0: Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Penny Winsor. She is a Melbourne-born, London-dwelling author, speaker and photographer. Penny's first book, Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring is out now. It's such a beautiful book that I really enjoyed reading. It's part memoir, but it's also full of research, interviews and statistics about caring and being a carer. Penny comes at this topic from two angles having been a carer growing up to one of her parents and now caring as a parent for one of her children. We talk about this in the episode, we talk about the book, the life lessons that can be found in a life of being a carer, how caring is a human theme for us all and I absolutely love her writing. She talks about work, creativity, raising a neurodiverse family, learning to see the beauty in life while also sharing the highs and lows along the way. And it was just such a pleasure to talk to her. So if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a little review or get in touch. And I really recommend grabbing a copy of Tender. It is a really valuable and really eye-opening book. Here is my conversation with Penny. So I'm so excited to finally have the lovely Penny on the podcast. Welcome. Thank
1: you so much for having
0: me. I was rereading your book last night in bed. Um, I read Tender when it came out and I reread it last night and it just reminded me what a beautiful book it is in so many ways. It's obviously kind of part memoir, but you've got a lot of other people's stories in there and I felt like it's kind of a book of life lessons. Did you kind of intend it to be that or did that come out naturally when you were writing?
1: It's, it's funny, actually, it changed a little bit because um, they're all things that I'm interested in. It's all the kind of processing that I've been doing over the last however many years. And um, I, I, I realised at one point that it was caring particularly I wanted to write about because I've got two different experiences as a carer. Um, I'm, my son is autistic and has learning difficulties, but I didn't want to write about that on its own. I didn't want to write a straight memoir. Um, what was interesting to me was how it related to my experience caring for my mum, but also what was more interesting is the conversations I had with other carers, and what I thought would be fun for me because <laughs> of course selfishly I think we do what what 's interesting to us don 't we yes. um, was to talk to other carers about their experiences and see that what we have in common um, so that 's why I decided to to do it that particular way but What was interesting is I really started out going, right, I'm writing this for other carers. Um, And then during the process of writing it, there was one interview in particular that I did with um, David, who's in the book, who's actually um, one of my closest friends' fathers, who I grew up on the same street with, and I know them very well. And he's been supporting his wife, Ray, who has Alzheimer's. And he's a retired, very recently retired GP. And when we had the conversation, we hadn't spoken in that, depth for quite a while we had this incredible long conversation and he said to me I wish I had known as a GP I wish I had known what this was like I didn't pay any attention to the carers that came into my GP room I was looking I was looking at my patients I was only focusing on them and it was at that moment that I realized the book was maybe something else. It wasn't just father care, as I suddenly realized I really wanted professionals to read it. And, um, and then when it came out, a lot of parents who don't have disabled children um, started talking to me about how the, a lot of it resonated with them and their experience of parenthood. So I think these ideas, are, they're just about life. Um, caring, I think, is a really very natural part of being human. Um, And so I don't think you can kind of almost separate it out from everything else in a way.
0: It's so true. It's so true. And when we talk about bigger themes like perfectionism and burnout and self-compassion, I think your book just almost distills it down to like it's purest human form. And I think it's a really great reminder that actually at the heart of it, community and looking out for each other. And that's kind of the point of life in many ways. But I love the Elizabeth Gilbert quote you use mm. in the book as well about that about how imperfectly human we all are because I hear it a lot with friends of mine who are parents they always say oh I thought I'd be this perfect parent and then obviously life just happens but would you be able to talk a little bit about those sort of learnings along the way of just realizing that you, you're you not going to be this like robotic perfect person all the time
1: it's so interesting I think every parent does go through it and I think everyone goes through it with a partner as well you know you think things are going to be a certain way with a partner and then you live with them for a few years and you realize it's maybe not going to be great all the time um we are human and we are deeply flawed and that's sort of normal and natural um I loved that Elizabeth Gilbert quote because I think it's so rarely said out loud and in the quote for anyone who hasn't seen the book it's talking she was talking about how she thought she was going to be a really wonderful carer to her partner, Rhea, who um, died. And she turned out to be quite terrible at it at times. And it's really hard to talk about that. We want to do the best for the people we love. Everyone I spoke to in the book didn't want to be not doing it. They, um, A lot of them were doing too much of it and needed much more support. But nobody said, I don't want to be the one doing this. But a lot of people we do struggle with the fact that we're not actually good at it all the time I mean you know like I think like any parent can can understand this feeling as well of like we want to do the best we know our children deserve the best but we aren't always the best at it and we have to learn to forgive ourselves and I think particularly as carers because the the situations can be very intense um, and the per- the other person we're supporting might be extremely dependent on us, you know, to their point, their life is in our hands. And that can be quite terrifying. But um, we do have to learn to forgive ourselves. And, and that's a process. And it's a process I'm continually doing, um, as in I still struggle with it. And it's a lifelong process, I think. I don't think it's something you get to finish and be like, OK, I'm good with that now. I think it's something that we do continue to learn. But I would say that where I'm at now is very different to where I was at, say, five or six years ago, where it took a long time to forgive myself for the mistakes I was making, whereas now with the kind of my understanding of, um, I guess, of our situation within a wider context of our life and and having practised much more self-compassion, I recover from those moments much quicker than I would have. And so that's much better for my relationship with my son. But it's also much better for me as well
0: yeah and I think that's why the book is so brilliant because you you're almost this kind of voice of wisdom I know you say that you're still you still you know live every day as someone who's learning like everyone else but there is definitely this um experience to your writing voice where I can imagine a lot of people are finding the book incredibly helpful and comforting but also the chapter That you, well, it's not a chapter, more of the intro that you added in, I guess, afterwards before it went to print, you do mention COVID. And I'd completely forgotten because I thought in my head the book had come out a while ago. (laughs) And I've just realized that, yeah, COVID's been going on for ages now as well.
1: Um, I I know, it's funny, isn't it? Like it's uh, this year has sort of time has ceased to exist in a normal way, hasn't it? But yeah, it was really interesting because I wrote the book in 2019 and I was doing the edits in early. Uh, 2020, and then um, I did the final final read through. I think it was the last week of March, so we were kind of it just into the pandemic, and and it was really it was really shocking actually, because I was reading through the stories of people who I'd been interviewing, who some of whom were already on the edge of what they could cope with because of the lack of support um and now what little they had had been taken away so there was that side of it so that was really difficult in some ways and then on the other hand it was actually the best time for me to reread it because it was almost like the universe saying um you need this wisdom right now you need these people's wisdom right now because I did get to speak to the most incredible people who were doing really challenging things um and they in that early, those early weeks of the pandemic, they were my reminder that we can do really difficult things and that we'll be okay. So it was—it felt um, both a positive and a really difficult experience to be rereading it in those weeks. Uh, so I did decide I um, emailed my editor, and I was just like, "I can't not talk about this. You know, this something is massive has just happened to all of these carers, and I'm talking about people who um, I know people who." have spent last year between um march and july caring 24 7 alone a person that has very high needs completely alone and i mean it's not in any way sustainable or safe for either of those people and there's there's a number of people out there who have done this um and so i couldn't not acknowledge that this was happening um and at the same time what what has happened throughout the pandemic is, um, is it's become really clear that um, the the attitudes towards disabled people in this country, um, I think for a lot of people they've been able to, who, aren't, who aren't disabled or who don't um, have a disabled family member have been able to ignore um, the messaging that's in our society, but it's become so rampant this past year, um, this idea that um, you know being disabled uh, makes you less of a loss you know, makes your life less, which um, has been a a clear message in a lot of um, headlines in the media. Um, And it's been really difficult. I think I felt like that needed acknowledging as well.
0: Absolutely. And I I mean, reading it, I felt really, really naive to not realising just how little the support had been pre COVID. It's like, suddenly, lots of people are talking about things, but it's realising that it wasn't okay before. And so therefore, it's even worse now. But I mean, maybe this is like really blindly too optimistic. But do you think in times like this, it's almost highlighted the world's problems like so much that they can't be ignored now? Or do you feel like actually, it's just a case of doing what you can still?
1: I am optimistic. I think I'm in I think I'm perhaps a fairly optimistic person in general. But I think um, the highlighting of of the unpaid work that mostly women are still doing um, to conti- like, to continue, continue to help the, the world function um, and I think it's been massively highlighted this past year but also I think in our country the um, the really big gaps in social care um, ha- cannot be ignored anymore. I don't imagine that anything immediate is going to happen about it but i I think we're at a point where we can't ignore it anymore and it's been sort of since you know 2010 um, the social care system has been you know systematically dismantled and so that really really needs to be addressed and of course the needs uh, the social care needs are increasing in this country because the population is aging so um, yeah it really does need to be addressed and I think this year potent- has the potential to um, help that I'm but perhaps some people think I'm far too optimistic about it. I'm not sure
0: I guess back to the life lessons thing and one thing that I highlighted in the book is just this way of taking each day as it comes. And I know that sounds really obvious, but people have said that in, in the pandemic a lot, haven't they? Like, oh, I'm just, you know, taking one day at a time. And it's almost that like Buddhist thing of like letting go of control and making peace with the impermanence of life and just going with the flow a bit more. But when I look at someone like you, I do think, oh my God, you're so, you you seem so kind of good at doing that and even when on your instagram stories when you're sharing something you're so passionate about you still you still feel like someone who's taking each day as it comes
1: it's interesting like um at the beginning of the pandemic i it sort of became clear to me that that um i guess carers and disabled people i think both um and people that have had experienced other kind of challenges like that um are almost quite well placed to deal with the challenges because um, we're very, as a family, very used to having quite a few things outside of our control. I don't, con- tr- I couldn't really control where my son goes to school. Um, a lot of people don't realise that about disabled children. You know, he can't go to just any school. So um, this is a joint decision. Obviously, I had it say, but um, it's a joint decision with the local authority and um, and a whole panel of people who um, decide what's best for him. Um, I can't just move across the country without risking um, not being able to get an education from him. For him, um, I can't control what time he goes to and from school because he has transport because the school's quite far away. Um, there's I can't like, I think um, as well, you know, particularly people who have a lot of. Um, medical needs and so have lots of different consultants appointments you don't decide it's the nhs you don't decide when they happen um, and so you're a lot of your life when you're disabled or when you're supporting someone who's disabled is outside of your control and you do get very accustomed to living that way um, and it's hard it's really hard but i think what i realized is you know with practice you do get better at it. <laughs> um i still fight against it i still find it hard i Still would love it if my family did not need the kind of outside support that we did. i still wish so much sometimes that we were the kind of family that could be self-contained. It's really hard needing so many other people. I need carers to do certain things. I need, um, we're very reliant on school to provide structure and um, support for my son in a way that is not so necessary for a non-disabled child, um and you know what sometimes I still hate it I still hate that feeling and I think part of it is I was also a care for my mom when I was a teenager and I became very independent very young because of that and I always prided myself on that independence and also people other people praise me for it you know like I've always been just got on with life right I got on and do my own thing um and it's tough learning to rely not just on services but also other people because I'm also a single parent and I I do rely quite heavily on my local friends for instance Um, and that's been really um, a hard lesson to learn but also really rewarding and I'm glad I've been forced to rely on my friends in lots of ways it's been really really um, enriching Um, but it's not it doesn't mean it's easy still.
0: And I think reading the book, you do realize how important community is and friends. It's like a story of friendship in the book. And that's sort of how it's meant to be, isn't it, in many ways? Like we are meant to rely on other people for help. And our culture is so based on like individual success or individuals overcoming things when actually we all need help.
1: We absolutely do. I think this idea that we should do things on our own, even though part of me wishes I could, I'm not going (laughs) to lie, it's not true. It's just not how humans are. We cannot do it on our own. Um, We we just absolutely can't. And I think we've been sold this myth that we can. Um, and that's, you know, part of the reason, I mean, I do have a chapter in there called self-care, which I ummed and about titling it that because I do have a bit of a problem with that word because it implies individual responsibility. And I think, um, there's a lot of structural reasons why um looking after ourselves is really difficult. It's really challenging as a carer to look after yourself. Um, even just something as simple as getting sleep can be really difficult to get. Um, for a lot of carers. So putting that emphasis on the self, I think is, um, is a, I think it's a mistake. Um, I think it's a kind of um, collective responsibility that we have to each other. Um, And I wish we would sort of look at it in that broader, more collective way. Um, And I kind of hoped to do that with the book, to have us look beyond what is our individual responsibility and what is our collective responsibility.
0: Yes, definitely. Because I interviewed Laura Mooker recently, who wrote a book about love. And she talks a lot about how in British culture, we're like, oh, what goes on behind closed doors isn't any of our business when actually, we're each of us are all each other's business and responsibility Mm -hmm. without being nosy. It's like, if someone's in trouble, actually, you have a responsibility to help when you can. And it's yeah, it's a really... that message comes across a lot but I'm talking about self-care just moving on to that topic in terms of how I know you wrote a newsletter recently about side hustles and how you are someone that does produce the work you want to produce and you somehow I don't know exactly how make time to make lovely brilliant things like books and podcasts and writing and newsletters and I know you mentioned in that newsletter that a lot of people expect mums especially or parents or carers or people who have responsibilities to sacrifice those bits that bring them joy would you be able to talk a little bit about that because I thought it was an amazing newsletter
1: I feel so strongly about this um it's interesting I was talking to another single parent friend of mine about this she has three children and um and she said um (laughs) she said every I, I don't ever want to complain because if I do people tell me to do less but when people like her and I are told to do less, they don't mean stop looking after your children and stop feeding them and stop cleaning the house. They mean do, do less for you. Cause that's what it comes down to often. Um, and so I can get, I get a bit frustrated sometimes with that idea that, um, that because my life has quite a few challenges that I can't have anything for myself. Um, you know, writing fills me up. It keeps me going. Um, And in fact, actually, um, Ali, who's my co-host for my new podcast, which is about writing, said to me the other day, you know, when I get up, because she's homeschooling four children at the moment, when I get up at dawn and work for a few hours, Um, I feel I feel like I can control my day I feel like it gives me something it doesn't take anything away doing that work doesn't take away it gives and that's how I feel about my work and that's not to say you have to feel that way about your work plenty of people just work for money and it's fine and whatever and they like earning money and they need to earn money um but for me work is so much more than that part of it is the autonomy um of being able to support myself financially. Um, it is a challenge for a lot of parents of disabled children, they are completely unable to work. I think something like only 16% of mothers of disabled children do any work at all and only 4% work full-time. Mm-hmm. So I work pretty much full-time, I guess, inflexible. I work full-time hours inflex- flexibly. And so I'm in that full percent. And to me, that's really, really shocking, um, but it is, it's I have to fight for it. I really feel like I have to fight for it. I feel like everywhere I turn um society makes it really difficult for me to work really difficult um we have a I have a current latest thing which is happening around transport which is making it incredibly difficult for me to be ever outside of the home and um so I'm kind of pivoting my work now to be much more inside the home and because I'm also an interior photographer um that obviously has thrown quite a few challenges my way so um it just feels like there are so many barriers to work. And so I get a little bit um, riled up when I see posts about, oh, you just have to meditate and you just have to like get out 8 hours sleep. And I'm like, yes, and I also need to be able to access work. And that's, mm-hmm. That for me is really, really key. But for somebody else it might not be paid work. It might be that they really, really love, they just need to knit and crochet and make things or they need to quilt or they need to... Um, sing or they need to play some other music. or They just, you know, they ha- they need to have something that's just for them. It could be lots of different things. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I'm rubbing up against this idea of I constantly have to be doing less at the moment.
0: And for you, does it look like stealing little moments or is there a, a, like a way you now kind of put it into your day? I know that Clover Stroud has started this like early morning 6am Writing prompt. Oh, I
1: know. I love that. And I'm every day. I'm seeing on her stories um, all the people who are sharing their their six am pictures of themselves and their laptop on their own with no one else around. I love that. Um, for me, actually, um, it's letting my children have quite a lot of screen time and deciding just to accept that that's how it is at the moment. Um, that's. It doesn't sound like a big thing, but it is actually culturally a really big thing to accept that they're off doing something in their room <laughs> and I'm not interacting with them and I'm choosing to do 2 hours work and let them do whatever they want on a screen um it is it takes a big mindset shift to be able to to allow yourself to do that kind of thing um but also even um in normal times I would say on pandemic times um I do I do actually have quite a lot of friends that really struggle to um, use school times and paid care times. So when their children are with childcare, like that they're paying for, to do anything other than earn money. They they just don't give themselves permission to do anything else except work. And they'll give themselves, they'll pay for the minimum childcare they can because they feel guilty about using childcare. And for me, I have never felt guilty about using childcare. Um, I'll use what I know I need, not the minimum. Um, and when, and obviously there's a, there's an affordability thing here and I'm not talking about people who cannot afford to pay any more whatsoever. I'm talking about people who don't allow themselves to pay any more. They don't value their time as much as say, getting a a takeaway on it. I know plenty of people who buy a takeaway on a Saturday night for 30 quid, but they wouldn't spend 30 extra quid that week on childcare. Um, so I think, it's not just about stealing the time. It's about making decisions about what's really important. And for me, um, having enough time in my day not to rush through work and feel like I'm running all the time, but to allow myself to be able to think because I do, you know, I mean, you know, you have to have thinking space. You need to be able to, to be able to put ideas together, stuff you need to be able to think. Um, and if I have a really short amount of time to work, I don't exercise, I won't eat lunch, I won't um, do any of those other things. And because I also have a disabled child, there's a lot of things I can't do when he's with me. So um, I've also naturally had to use childcare to even do things that I know other families would do where they'd take their children along, um, like running errands and doing all that kind of stuff. That's something I can't do. So I had to make a decision a while ago about whether or not I was gonna allow myself the time that I needed rather than the bare minimum. And I and I decided to give myself that time. And I put my childcare costs above absolutely everything except obviously mortgage and food. Mm-hmm. But my childcare costs are up there with my heist. And this is also because I'm Australian and I don't have any family in this country as well. So I don't have any um, unpaid Childcare, um and also my son's needs mean that I can't just drop him around to a friend's house I can't do informal swapping with him although friends have very very kindly stepped in in emergencies but I do save that for pure emergencies because it doesn't work very well and it's um hard for my son so um yeah I just I made a decision to give myself the time I needed and I'll do everything I can to make it happen
0: yeah oh that's that's so powerful and I think it is crazy looking from the outside looking in, because obviously I don't have children, but I've seen how much women especially seem to have to justify the way they live their lives.
1: We do have such strong ideas about motherhood that are so pervasive. We don't even see them as cultural. We just see them as fact. <laughs> um, and one of them is that if you love your children, you spend all your time with them unless you're working. And then that's OK, you know, Um and so I think giving yourself permission to do something other than essential paid work, um, you know, even during the pandemic, for instance, I started writing a novel, um, not because I needed more stuff to do, but I needed something different. I needed something that was just for me, that nobody was waiting for, nobody's expecting it. Um, it's all what I feel like doing and nothing to do with what's being commissioned or anything like that. Um, and I know a lot of people who didn't give themselves permission to do anything um, during the pandemic, except maybe really, really basic self-care things to keep them, you know, sane. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do slightly more than that. I'm going to get some sleep. I'm going to feed myself quite well because I can do that because we, you know, we can cook and stuff. Um, but I'm also going to do something fun.
0: <laughs> it always reminds me of Julia Cameron, and she in her books, she always references a friend who's like, I've started writing and like my depression has lifted. And obviously that sounds so generalised and very light and very easy. Obviously it's not that, but she just says that like people float into her life and tell her that creativity actually does take away a layer of, I don't know what, some negative emotions.
1: It is, yeah, I have, I have so much I could say about that.
0: But I
1: actually... I got her book, The Artist's Way, when I was I was very young. It was like my first job. I was living in New York and I lived with a writer and she gave me that book it's 20 years ago and I've been doing it ever since. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was life-changing, this idea of, and I, I think aside from the journaling and the idea of morning pages, which I don't do daily, by the way, especially not since I've had children, I I go through phases when I need to use it. I, it's a tool I kind of come back to, but um. The idea of an artist date, I have held on to that, obviously not during the pandemic, um, <laughs> but that is, a, that is something I've been doing for 20 years because of her, this idea of having some time that's just for you, that's just about play and about creativity without any expectations um, and without having to kind of turn it into something productive or monetary, with monetary value to it. Um, and it's, it's really powerful.
0: Yes, it really is. And also on that note, I just wanted to end maybe on a more of a simple tip for anyone listening who might be struggling. But in the book, you talk about sort of identity and labels. And I know some of the people you interviewed, they never really called themselves a carer. But I have a friend actually, who very recently has turned into a carer. I have seen her definitely not take as much time for herself at all. I wondered, is there anything for someone who feels like they have completely lost that side of themselves? anything to start off with maybe that's a hard question
1: it is a hard question because it's so personal just like you know you and I might find that through writing but somebody else might not um I would say that I really really truly believe that in order to be a good carer you need to have a part of yourself that's for yourself um I think taking giving your all to somebody it's almost too much pressure on that person as well in the same way that i think revolving your entire identity around your children um, is quite a lot of pressure for those children to kind of fulfill you so um i would say you wouldn't be hurting that other person by having something that's just for you um, and i truly believe that i think you'll you'll be giving them something as well by having just a little part of your life that's just for you and whether that's um spending time obviously not spending time with friends in real person in real life but you know whether it's activities or whether it's friendships um or whatever it is whatever that person needs um I hope that they can give themselves permission to have it because people people don't really give us permission like they don't explicitly um and we often don't realize that um that our friends are looking for permission sometimes. (laughs) You know, I sometimes I do just tell a friend, I'm gonna give you permission to do that thing now. And they're like, really? Do I can I just do it? And I'm like, you can do it. You don't have to, you know, you shouldn't have to wait for me, but I'm giving that permission if you want it. Um yeah, I think it's it's such a tricky, it's such a tricky one. And it can take a long time. But also I'd say in a new caring situation, I know when my son was first diagnosed, it's very intensive and it took me a while to calm down. I was on very high alert, doing tons of research and trying to work out, out the new world that we're in. Um, and it is a whole new world, that won't last forever, that you can come down from that moment and you sort of have to because that is actually, that is unsustainable, that period of caring. But, um, but I think most people do come to a point where they um, are able to settle into the role a bit more.
0: That's so wise. Thank you. And actually, there's a bit in the book that I underlined that said, and this might be paraphrasing, actually, but it says self care isn't about putting yourself first, but it's just saying I matter too. It's so interesting. Every single answer to do with caring. It's it's actually, like I said, like a lesson for everyone, isn't it? Everyone can take something from even a specific example in the book about caring. I just such a brilliant book. It's, it's just caring is just human. You know, it's mm-hmm. just
1: it, it's just very, very human. There's almost nothing more human it's like you know birth death and caring <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah
0: from one podcast to another would you be able to tell us more about yours quickly just so that if someone wants to go and listen more to you they can go and click below
1: well for if anyone if for anyone that this is up their street um my friend ali miller and i have started a new podcast called not too busy to write and so it's for um people who have lots of things going on in their life and are also writers so that might be having children or caring responsibilities or just really intense jobs or whatever else is going on in your life. Um, Yeah so uh, we have the trailer is up at the moment Um, the official first episode will be out mid-February.
0: I can't wait to listen it's such a good idea and it's so everything that you encompass in a podcast form so I'm excited.
1: (laughs) Well and specifically maybe for slightly writing nerds but actually we will talk about creativity in general so for people who are not writers but want to be not too busy to do other creative pursuits it will um it will probably be interesting to you too
0: amazing oh well thank you so much for coming on and letting me ask you all the questions i wanted to whilst reading the book i'd underlined so much and um yeah the paperback is out this year isn't it
1: yes it'll be out in june i believe yeah
0: wonderful well thank you again thanks so much for having me thank you